Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Psychic Wise podcast. I'm Ginger Hendry. I'm Kathy Rumsey. And I'm Jerry Carlin. And we're really excited today to be able to talk to, we know we have a lot of our animal communicator friends on, we have one on with us today, but we're on um, today to talk topic um, that <laughs> I hope won't be too dark, um, but we've talked about um, grief and we've sort of gone around it in different ways. And we've asked um, Chaplain Meg Spinella to come on with us, as we said, uh, Meg, we know through the animal communication world, but Meg has spent um, a good part of 30 years in the hospice field as a chaplain. And we really wanted to talk about um, sort of the process um, and we don't really know where the podcast is going to go. We want to talk about the process of grief and, um, and talk with Meg about her experience. So Meg, welcome. Um, if you want to just introduce yourself and give us a little background. Thank you, Ginger, Jerry, and Kathy. I'm happy to be part of this. Um, I am an, what's called an interfaith chaplain. I work with people who have a faith community or none at all. And uh, I've worked in three states, uh, and it's, it can be very different uh, in different regions of the country. So I've had the benefit of working with uh, very different types of communities. Um, I love my work. And when I stopped doing bedside with dying people or doing ER, I uh, developed a website to deal with grief and trauma. And uh, trauma became my specialty. And of course, along with trauma comes some profound grief. So uh, this has been uh, an interest of mine and a specialty for many, many years. So Meg, this is what has fascinated me because I had talked with you earlier um, about this as I I didn't realize that, you know, knowing you from this world, the animal communication world, sort of where you came from, I'm just so fascinated. What, what, how did that happen? How did you end up going down that path? What opened for you that drew you to this work? Because I think you really have to be a special person to, um, to work in that environment. It has to be so, I don't know if stressful is the right word, but, um, you have to be such a giving person to be able to do that. What, what drew you? How did you end up there? It's got well, like, your grief. I'd like to have a dollar for every time I've been asked, how can you do the work that you do? Yeah. I, I firmly believe that for every type of work there is, there's someone who loves to do it. You know, uh, there's those people who climb down in a sewer and do work like that. You know, there's lots of work that I would not want to do, but I love my work. And as a child, I was deeply steeped in spiritual, uh, the spiritual world. Uh, I was raised in a faith community, literally spent, uh, I went to a a Catholic school, uh, spent seven days a week going to church. And that was the kind of thing that as I came of age at 18, I moved away from. I moved away from the faith community of my youth. But I didn't discard everything that I learned there because I did learn that there is something greater than ourselves. And as I began um, 
my work as a teacher, I worked as a teacher, I have a master's in education. Uh, I was still strangely attracted to topics like children and death, you know, like, cause I would have children in my classes who would experience the death of a grandparent. And I would, you know, be drawn to looking for the best way to help them. So um, when I uh, was raising my children, I started volunteering for hospice. I'm married to a physician. My sister's a hospice nurse. And it was sort of the family thing that we did. So I volunteered for the same hospice where my sister worked at the hospital where my husband worked. And I did that for five years. And then we took care of my mother-in-law in our home. And meanwhile, our close neighbor across the street was also in hospice. So my husband and I both were going back and forth across the street dealing with these two people who were dying. And it was through that process that I decided to go and train to be a chaplain. I was kind of between careers and my children were teenagers at the time. So I, was, I had some freedom to, to go back into training. And it's a clinical training. You train at a hospital, you do a lot of ER, uh, and you, as an adult learner, you get to choose a specialty. And I chose hospice as my specialty. So they, at the time, assigned me to an AIDS unit. And this was when everybody was dying of AIDS. Nobody was living with AIDS the way they do now. So that was very much a hospice experience, bedside with, with dying people. And um, then, of course, I had the kind of sudden deaths that happened in the ER. Uh, and then I began, once I uh, gained my chaplaincy um, credentials, um, to work, to be a, just a working chaplain uh, for, uh, first of all, a visiting nurse hospice, and later for a hospital-based hospice. And then we moved to Florida, where I did the same thing, and, and then we moved to Oregon, where I did that as well. Uh, in the meantime, I also, did a year of postgraduate work in bioethics. So I've, done a, I've been on a lot of ethics committees, including statewide ethics committees, because when you're working bedside with dying people and people are making all these decisions, there are ethical issues that come into play. So um, I had that piece going on as well. Um, and it was just a transformative and wonderful experience to work with families at the bedside. Of course, there were also lots of uh, family conflicts that come up because it's a very emotional time. And uh, Jerry knows about this because she, having had a mom in hospice, um, and when my mother, when we were taking care of my mother-in-law. We had conflicts with my husband's brothers who didn't, they wanted to do things differently than we were doing them. And as a chaplain, that was my job. Myself and the social worker, we worked very closely together on family conflicts around decision-making at the end of life. So would and, you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but so would you help kind of diffuse conversations or 
yes. those conflicts yes talking right. with them i i would facilitate conversation between the family generally in a hospital setting they would give me a room yeah <laughs> family members would come in and it would be my job to facilitate communication between them we called it getting to yes uh getting to something that some things that they could agree on for the good of the patient the first thing people needed to agree on was that it was the patient's wishes that needed to be honored yes. not the wishes of the relative who flew in from montana to oh my North god Carolina. yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and that was kind of a cliche that it was always the relative who had the least involvement and came from furthest away who would be the most opinionated yes that was a huge enormous challenge it was an enormous challenge but we learned we learned many many tools to diffuse these situations and uh in 99 percent of the cases we could get the family to agree on honoring what the parent would want now sometimes the parent was uh able to express wishes still on the deathbed many times the parent was not they were either too physically compromised or mentally compromised so this is why i did a lot of teaching around advanced care planning healthcare proxies so that there would be someone who had been appointed by the dying person to make those decisions so we weren't trying to wing it you know at the very end I just and, uh, and I just found out I don't know I'm sure it's a state to state thing but I just found out that the state of New York you cannot be admitted to a hospital without a healthcare proxy or when you're admitted you <clears throat> you must appoint a healthcare proxy yes um, that is, is a relatively new thing and it's and it is state by state uh having worked in three states I had to work with three different kinds of laws uh and the laws were always evolving. They're still evolving. Uh, and, and they'll probably always will be evolving. I know when I went this past year for my physical, my doctor um, gave me and my husband, we, we usually go around the same time, healthcare proxy forms, which, you know, we did for a while, but. I've had, I've had one for, gosh, 20 years. Yeah, of course, I've had one for 30 years. Um, can we, so can we talk a little bit about, and I, because I, I love that, that it must've been really a blessing that when you were in your training to become a chaplain, that, I mean, for lack of a better word, that sounds weird, but, um, that the AIDS epidemic was going on and because you were, you were learning to help people who were younger. And you know, I, you know, I, most people I think, think of hospice as my 96 year old grandmother, very um, end of life, like, you know, end of a long, fruitful right, life. Right. But <clears throat> I have children who've been in hospice. I know 40 year old women who've, who've you know, yeah. No, we're in hospice before they pass. And it's, it's a very different thing than, you know, adult and even middle-aged children arguing about their dying parents' yeah. wishes and stuff to 
there's, it, I'm saying this very poorly. 25 year old. Like right. your, your understanding of the grief process and, and compassion around it must be quite extensive because I would think that the grief over a younger person in hospice and their family and how that feels versus an elderly person is quite different or is it all grief is grief and no it's different because yeah. two of the most poignant cases i can think of both occurred at, in the hospital setting in oregon and one would and actually both of these individuals were 32 years old one was a woman 32 years old with four children who was dying of uh, cancer that had metastasized and her children were in the custody of her ex-husband. We were in Oregon, the children were in Texas. Her primary caregiver was her aunt and, and her mother would come some of the time. But so the, the grief of the mother and the aunt, the grief of the children, the 32 year old having to leave her children. Uh, the other 32 year old was a, a male who had two children he was dying, uh, he had, was, had juvenile diabetes, you know, his whole life. And to live to be 32 was a lot. I mean, juvenile diabetics often die much younger than that. So there was his mother, his wife, his children. And, you know, it's, it's a real um, balancing act to try to meet the needs of these various people. And then when you've got conflict thrown in, like this custody thing where the children were in Texas and, you know, how were they going to get up to see their mom? You know, part of my job was the children were four different ages, like which age was it appropriate? How much should they know at what age? And, you know, it's pretty complicated um, when you have a young person. And... Um, I myself had a 36-year-old son die. Now, his was a sudden death. And one of the things I've done a lot in my career is write about sudden death grief versus prolonged death grief. Mm. And there's, a different, there's about 10 categories of grief that I can name. There's anticipatory grief. There's complicated grief. There's what I call profound grief. And it, you know, depending upon how where uh, and under what circumstances the death occurs, you know, all these different kinds of grief come into play. It's really, Go I'm ahead. sorry, Meg, it's really interesting that you said that because my husband and I have had this discussion a couple of times. My mom passed from metastasized breast cancer and that, that went on for several months. My husband's father passed overnight and we were like, what? like you know what I mean and so we often have that discussion you know not the which is better discussion because neither of them is better but yes the grief is completely how did they differ yeah they differ so much because like okay I knew it was coming which makes it awful he didn't know it was coming which makes it awful, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, that's that's. Um, and with the sudden death, there's the didn't get to see say goodbye. Yeah. There's the sometimes yeah. not getting to actually see the body at all. Right. Uh, in my son's case, he was cremated in another country. 
You know, I mean, yeah. oh, God. Yeah. when it comes to death and dying, you know, you can see just about anything. I mean, it's, there's such a incredible variety. This is a big part of why I started a website for trauma. And I write regular blogs to help people through uh, guilt, uh, the, uh, the whole notion of change, forgiveness. There's so many topics that attach themselves to this general topic of grief. Can I can I ask a question? Because we're talking a lot about the the um, family members, but you also spent time and talked with the actual patients. Yeah. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about? I'm not you know I'm not asking you to give us specific discussions or whatever, but how did that go? How, you know, was it was it just you and them in a room and? How did that go? Because that was a really important piece of when my mom passed. And yeah. I'm, I'm just curious, how, how, what's that piece of it? I don't know yeah. if I'm making myself clear about what I want from you, but go. Well, the, <laughs> the primary concern for the chaplain who's sitting bedside with somebody who's dying is fear. How much fear of death do they have? Now, as a hospice professional, our number one uh, goal is pain management. We want to make sure that that person is comfortable because you cannot have a conversation about spirituality or fear or uh, or even unfinished business, whether it's legal or emotional or whatever, unless pain is managed. Yeah. So every member of the team has that as their primary job. Uh, when you first meet the patient. Mm -hmm. uh, that first encounter is about building trust. And um, Ginger mentioned this as a calling. I think there are personalities that are uniquely suited to um, that dynamic of building trust. Um, I tend to be somebody, and I noticed this long before I was a chaplain, that people would tell me things, you know, like I might not even, might even be a lot more than I wanted to know. But it was just, and this is where mystery comes into it. It's kind of a mystery why that was the case, but um, building trust between myself and the patient was something that I viewed as essential, and it is, it's essential in the profession, but it was not very difficult for me. Yes, you would sometimes get what we call thrown out of the room, you know, because you represented to some people's mind what the chaplain represents is religion. Yeah. And, and if yeah. they had a bad experience with religion, uh, recovering Catholics, recovering Mormons. I worked out, out west. I worked with lots of recovering Mormons, and in those cases, uh, if they had the hellfire and brimstone kind of upbringing, and you represented that to them, I mean, at least in their mind, so you you would get thrown out, and then you get to try. You get another chance. You get to try again, but there were cases where I was not even allowed in the room. That didn't happen very often. 
but I love, I love that you use that that phrase because I for for years have referred to myself as a recovering Catholic and I haven't heard that. I haven't heard other people say that, but, and I know, I mean, I see so, you know, I see that collar and it's like, Oh, my defenses go up. I don't, I wouldn't be a, I wouldn't throw you out of the room, but I would definitely put my guard up a little. Um, not so much now because, but, and not so much unless you were a priest. It's, it's, it's absolutely true because I remember when we were in the hospital with my mom and my mom was Catholic. We were all brought up Catholic. And I guess I, same thing, Meg, recovering Catholic or whatever. And I love exactly what you said too, Kathy, because, okay, so we're sitting there in the hospital room and in comes the chaplain or, or whatever and my walls go up immediately. And they're offering to pray and, and stuff like this. Now, this wasn't hospice. She wasn't in hospice at this time. This was just, you know, a chaplain, you know, walking into the, and yeah, my walls went up, but, but I was, you know, introduced themselves or whatever. And my mom was like, yeah, I would love that. So yeah. I just very respectfully left the room and, and, and let them have at it. So there was no kicking out or anything, but it's a, I love what you just said, Meg, because you don't think that. But here it is, the care, me, the caregiver was like, oh, hell to the no, get out of here, dude. You know what I mean? Like, and didn't say that or anything. But what you said, Kathy, is also brilliant because I wouldn't do it the same way now. Right. Because now all I the wouldn't. work that we've done and moved forward and spirituality and stuff like that, so that it's not that Catholic stuff that comes up anymore, because I know a chaplain coming in is not trying to convert somebody or do, do, do you know what I mean? Um, I love there that are, you brought there, that up, Meg. There are, I'm uh, sure. There are chaplains that are trying to do that. Yeah, they're probably trying to like, do you accept Jesus Christ as your savior before you die so right. that you can go to the right place maybe? I was given the choice whether to be ordained or not. And I very consciously chose not to be an ordained chaplain for the reasons you're talking about. Because I go in in professional clothes, I mean, not like I'm dressed now, but, but they're not, uh, they don't represent, there's no collar. There's you no, don't, yeah, you don't look like a nun, right? You know, all our listeners right now are thinking, what the hell is she wearing? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, not like I'm dressed now. <laughs> We're not going to tell you. <laughs> down, the down this. I know. Cause I asked Meg, I was thinking the same thing as you were starting to talk, like how much would you have to, or do you know about different religions? Because when you're in a hospital setting, anybody could be anything. So do you go down that path? Is it more spiritually oriented? How, where That's do well, you question? Every chaplain is different in that regard in terms of their background. It's actually to go into the training. It is the toughest, uh, application process I ever went through. I was interviewed, in order to start the training, I was interviewed by eight people, you know, in a room with, with eight professionals. Mm -hmm. And uh, my particular background, most people who go into chaplaincy do it later in life. I was in my 40s, uh, early 40s. And so, and there were people who did not make it through the training. Uh, but my particular background in college, uh, I did a double major 
and and one of my majors was religious thought, which was uh, basically world religion. So I studied everything from Zoroastrianism to Judaism to uh, Buddhism, Hinduism. So I was well uh, educated, if you want to call it that, to deal with and respond to whatever I found in an urban hospital. Uh, the, the hospital I trained in was an urban hospital and, and had a lot of variety. I had Vietnamese people who were Buddhist. And then within Buddhism, there's sex and different, you know. So I even had studied that. So um, the thing that helps the most probably with that problem, guys, is to listen. Mm. You know, just, uh, of course, since I'm not dressed in a particular habit or I don't have a collar and all of that, uh, I don't, people don't generally put the wall up right away. Sometimes the word chaplain is enough to get thrown out, but if it isn't, then you start with listening, you know, you, and, and you, what you're listening for is, as I said, as I started to say, you're listening for how much fear there is in relation to dying, in relation to spirituality. Do they have a negative view of, you know, based on religion of what's coming next? You know, are they afraid of hell, frankly? You know, like, uh, and then it's my job to um, really listen over, you know, ideally we get to have multiple, multiple visits with a patient. One of the great challenges of hospice is sometimes people are not referred to hospice until they have maybe 48 hours to live. And that's, from a hospice point of view, that's like the worst case scenario because the only thing you can do then is manage their pain and make sure, you know, that they're in a sacred environment, you know, that there's not like a, let's make a deal playing on the television and this kind of thing. Yeah. You, it, it's, it's important to establish pain management and a sacred environment. And with 48 hours, that's all you can do. But some of my best cases, my very best case, I had 18 months working with the patient and the family. I mean, that was. And so what's the goal? Okay, so I know you're saying like pain management is the goal. The, the secondary goal or the main goal, whatever, I don't know, is just, you're just, just to be there, to let them talk, to let them get their fears out or get their wonderment out or get their, I wonder this, or I wonder, I'm worried about this, or it, it's a sacred person or a safe space person away from possible family craziness to just right. be and feel free to talk about that stuff that you don't talk about. Yeah, a lot of it, Jerry, is confession because uh, okay. Um, once again, if I wow, had a double, really big. For every for every time someone said to me, "I've never told anyone this," mm. I had people, and this was another reason that I specialized in trauma, because I had people, uh, World War II veterans, uh, elderly women who had held on to a secret related to a trauma or related to what they viewed as a sin uh, for 
50, 60, 70, even 80 years of suffering with something that they never told anyone. I, that's making me cry. That's making me cry. Yeah, it, oh. it, it should make well, you think cry. Think about that, right? I mean, that's... It made me cry lots of times. And, and crying with the patient is a, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and it, absolutely. It happens when... Yeah. Uh, there's a tremendous relief. For example, let's take a World War II veteran who had, because they were, they signed up to go fight either in the Pacific theater or in Europe. And they were expected to do terrible things. Mm -hmm. And they experienced horror. Now with World War II veterans, the whole notion of PTSD, it didn't exist. You know, they called it shell shock and, and you had minimal attention to it. Mm. But you did not, in general, those veterans stuffed it all down and didn't talk about it. I mean, when you talk to the children of World War II veterans who are now like my age, you know, or older, they'll say he never told us about it. He never told us what he went through, you know. And, well, right. But you can understand it why they wouldn't either, because how do you explain that to someone who you were you're trained in helping people process the emotions and stuff, but you could see not wanting to be willing to share something that upsetting with someone because they don't want to put it on the people around them, I'm assuming too, and because what's that person going to do for them? Yeah. You know? I have tremendous respect for those veterans and there aren't that many of them left at this mm -hmm. point, but because they did carry the weight of what they had to do. And as we all know, what they had to do was critically important for the rest of us. Right. You know? uh, and I would imagine that when they did that, they, you know, like you said, confession or whatever, telling you these, these things, I would imagine that you could kind of, you know, being the intuitive that you are and, and whatever, feel relief from them. There has to be some sort of relief in them being able to confess, I'm using air quotes, to something that they feel was some sort of sin or whatever, things they did wrong, they've never told anybody. Um, so I love that piece as the whole hospice thing. You're, you're, you're this safe space for somebody to say these things to and get them out. And, and I feel that no matter how you were brought up, religion kind of always has that piece where you got to get this stuff out before you go up or down wherever <laughs> we always laugh about, we call good up and bad down, you know what I mean? But there's got to yeah, there be some relief. There, there, was, yeah. there was relief to just even to be able to talk about, let alone to go further with it, to process it, to unpack it. And, and yeah. you know, my message for those people who were mostly men, I did work with a couple of uh, nurses who had were from World War II, but they were generally not hurt, harming people. They were helping people. Right, so right. They didn't have quite a degree of guilt, but they did have trauma. Because I was of just going to say, because there's also the trauma piece of somebody experiencing 
trauma, whether it's in a situation like that or just a personal trauma that, you know, someone's a victim of something and they never tell anybody. Mm -hmm. And the weight of that trauma as you carry it through your life, yeah. it, 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 it gets heavier if you don't talk about it. So I would assume there comes a breaking point too, where it's like, well, what I say is that let's say a grandmother that I worked with, and there were sadly many of them who never talked about a rape that happened when they were young women. Right. And they'd be in their seventies, you know, sixties, seventies, and, and they would tell me about it. Right. And, and in those cases, just the telling helped a tremendous amount. Mm -hmm. and, and the compassion that they received from me as a, as a, as a fellow female uh, about the whole subject. And I was inspired. I've actually written a novel about three generations of women. And in the grandmother's generation, she was a rape victim. And a child resulted from it. And the, the novel is about how the trauma in the grandmother's generation, because it was unspoken and unhealed, spilled out into the subsequent. Oh, generation. yeah. And uh, I was you know, inspired to do this by having listened to these stories and knowing that this stuff happens. And know. so can I, I'm going to just, I'm going to carry this, this specific topic into like present day stuff. And I don't know, I know you're a chaplain and you've done the training around that. I'm not a therapist, but I will say, you know, if I believe it's really, really important for people who, if you have suffered a trauma, like a rape or something that you never spoke about, how I, I personally feel, even though I'm sure it feels overwhelming for people to, to find someone trusted to talk about it, that it's like the sooner you can get it out of your body through words, whether it's in a journal or talking to a therapist or a trusted friend, or I don't know, go sit on top of a mountain and say it out loud. But if you don't get that out of your, you know, express it and get, get, not get rid of it. Cause I don't think that trauma ever goes away, but it, it, it lightens it up a little bit. Right. Yeah. And it's like a poison that you, for many, I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm married to a physician and he, he we talk about this topic and, and you know, we both had trauma in our own lives and he compares it to lancing a boil. You know, you, you get the poison out. Right. You re and for example, if you've ever slammed your nail in a car door, which I did, mm -hmm. and I went to the ER and they stuck a needle in and the pressure of that blood, the blood literally went across the room. Right. But once that pressure was relieved, I was no longer in pain. So right. it is very similar to that. It's, it's right. like a, a poison or a pressure. Right that's always there and if you leave it there for decades and decades it, i can see that with my um my dad my stepdad um who was failing in, in his 80s had been a world war ii vet never spoke 
about anything. He had a bronze star, purple heart, never knew much about what had happened. And I was caring for him. He was in the hospital um, and he had been over-medicated. And so we had, we were in the ER and they had the curtains all drawn around him and he was asleep. We were waiting for somebody to come in and he woke up, he sat up and he was yelling. Um, and he was yelling, get down, get down. He's yelling, Sammy, get, you know, this whole thing. And everybody came running. And so they, they calmed him down. He didn't quite know what had happened. He went to sleep a little bit, woke up, and then he, then he was like processing it. And he said, was I yelling? And I said, yes. And he said, what did I say? And I told him. And he didn't say anything for a really long time. And then he told me, um, sorry. I love when we cry on this show. Let it out, girl. Mm -hmm. We're all starting right now. He had been in a, in a foxhole. In, in uh, there was a young kid in the foxhole with him that he was serving with, and it was cold and rainy, and they were being... Sorry. Um, they were being shot at. And to be funny, to lighten the, the, um, the mood or whatever, being stuck in this hole in the rain, this kid was sticking his head up, sticking his head up, and the guys were saying, Sammy, get down. He was 19. And he got hit. And he never told, my dad never told anybody. And my guess is your father carried some sort of guilt around that big time. Or, I'm sorry, was it your dad, your stepdad? Yeah. yeah. Guilt, trauma, all yeah. kinds of things, yeah. yeah. That's a perfect example, Ginger, of what I, what I experienced when people would tell these stories and, and also the nightmares would happen in front of me or I would be called while the nightmare was happening. The, the uh, on-call nurse would, would call me. I might be sleeping in the, in the on-call room because we spent the night at the hospital and, and have to come up and the person would, like your dad did, just be waking up and not be quite sure what had just happened, you know, but when they are on their deathbed, this stuff, what I, the, the phrase I use is it presents itself for healing. It's, it's a, it's a thing that's a good thing that it's presenting itself in a way that can't be ignored anymore. So they can have a peaceful passage to the other side without that fear and guilt and and the heaviness of the trauma. What I did notice after that was that he did speak more, not in a, in a lot of detail, but spoke more about that time. Mm -hmm. He had never, even though he had the medals and whatnot, he had never talked about it or felt pride from it. And he did afterward. He like um, sort of owned it, if that was the right word. Um, That's a good word because yeah. yeah, in the healing process, when the person starts to talk about it, what we try to do is, you could call it separating the wheat from the chaff, we try to help them to understand that the going to war was an honorable thing that they did. The experience of war doesn't feel honorable, mm -hmm. but 
your father was on your father was your father he was he was honored as many of them were many of these veterans that i worked with had had all kinds of honors so the trouble they were having is with exactly that how do i balance that i've been honored for something which to me felt horrible horrible yeah you know wow so well, that's why you know you look at the suicide rates of of return of veterans it's 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 astounding because there's you know if we we don't we definitely don't give the support we need and everything um you know and it's but it's interesting the people who who don't speak about things that they've experienced or something it's hard for them but then you have the the people who are left behind who might find out something and i have um <clears throat> a friend a friend um who in the last couple of years both her parents passed away within six months of each other so she's one of i think i don't know she's got there's three kids all together and um something fun something weird happened i can't remember which parent passed first but one passed and then the other passed like within six months so they were going through their last will and testament of the parents and it was something about and and i i my theory is is that they somehow wanted the kids to know because they worded their we leave our you know, a state or whatever it was to our children who were produced as something like to our children who were a product of our marriage. And it was enough for the woman to go, huh, that's a really weird way to, to word, not to our children, but to our children who were a product of our marriage. And little digging and you know ancestry.com interesting stuff these three kids had a full sibling the parents were high school sweethearts she had had a child they had had a child that they gave up for adoption because i don't know if she was still in high school or early college or something but they didn't feel they were ready to be parents and so they gave this child up for adoption. They went on to be married for 60 years, had three more children. The parents both pass away and the three children who are now, you know, middle age are left to deal with, we have a full sibling. We have a full, there's another of us. And, and you know, it, it's, I think for them, part of the processing is how could mom and dad not have at some point in their life told us this? Like there's so many unanswered questions and wow, that is a lot. And you think it's a lot for the kids, but it's also a lot for both of those parents who chose to keep that secret for whatever reason, you know, and I know that 60 years ago, it's a generational thing. It's a yeah. generational thing, but wow, that's that's tough, you know? Yeah, I think I read a novel recently that that was the topic, that someone found out 
that they had a sibling that they didn't know they had. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I would imagine, Meg, that just sort of like you said, you said that some people are like you walk in the room and they're like, you know, nope, absolutely not, get out. There's probably, I guess, the, I find it probably interesting that there's this whole range. You're going to go from that and then there's some people that are like, sit down, make yourself comfortable and, you know, verbal diarrhea about everything. And then there's some people that you have to kind of coax. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of like every everything between those two extremes yeah and i think most of what we've been discussing has to do with how complex people's histories are i mean i had out west i had uh people of indian american indian descent where a sibling had been as an infant taken from the family and given to a white couple to raise basically stolen from the and at the mom's deathbed the sisters who had were not raised together, had never met, you know, so in these deathbed situations, you can see just about anything. I mean, yeah. talk about I could write a book. I mean, it's no just kidding. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I would see an uncomplicated family, that was minuscule, you know, like maybe one-tenth of one percent of what I would see. Would be. Yeah, because I think it's interesting. We all think we're that uncomplicated family, or I used to think we were that I know I'm family. not. <laughs> Until the first, the first death, and now, oh, God, we are dysfunctional and very complicated. Um, yes, you never think it's going to be you, but there Yeah, is. I think I was in college before I found out that my dad had been married before. There were no oh, children wow. as a product of that marriage, but... My parents chose, they had seven children together and chose not to tell us that my father had been married before uh, until, you know, I was one of the younger children. So my siblings were even older than me when we found this out. And we literally found it out from this, this speaks to what Kathy was saying, this metal box that they kept in their bedroom closet with documents in it, you know. So normal, I never think in terms of normal. Normal, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's one of those, there is no such thing as normal, you know? Yeah. yeah. Having, having raised, a, having raised a, a kid on the autistic spectrum, and, and I can remember him as a, as a, you know, a school-age kid saying, I just wish I was normal. And I'd say, there's no normal. Nobody no, there is no normal. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's funny because he would name people, and I'd be like, but this, but that, because even someone who looks normal is, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, we're all just different. We're all variations of I think all of, through our work, all of us have learned not to assume anything yeah. about anybody, you right. know, yeah. just from what you see. You know, I mean, people might look at me and assume, you know, that I'm privileged, I'm upper middle class, I'm this, I'm that. But I had a son who died of a brain aneurysm at age 36 and you know looking at me nobody's going to know that right and anybody that i look at you know um i i don't know until unless they let me in for some reason because i'm working with them or whatever but i love that you say that because there's so much of that going on you know right now in Assumpt assumptions in, yeah in this time that we the are we are in there um, so many assumptions, and this is kind of off topic, but not really because it's it's what we're saying. It's like, okay, you're driving down the road and the guy in front of you cuts you off and you're 
response sometimes is like, you little, you know, whatever. And I have been trying for the past like several years to say, when anybody does anything to me, when anybody attacks me or, or, you know, verbally or just somebody I don't even know, like, eh, you know, give me the finger or something like that. I have no idea what's going on in their lives. Yeah. What if they just had a horrible diagnosis? What if their wife just had a horrible diagnosis? What if they just got fired? What if their son, like, you know, like, you know, brain aneurysm, there's something like insane like that. You have no idea. What is it going could even be on? something like with the driver cutting you off, maybe they just got stung by a bee. Exactly. You have no idea. And sometimes as humans, okay, a lot of times as humans, especially in our current environment where we are in September of 2020, um, there's a whole lot of assumption, you know, going on, you know, if you think, one way about this or another thing about that, then people are like, oh, that means you're a blah, blah, blah. You know, well, you don't know if that, what that means. Maybe there's something that happened in your life that causes a trauma. So you're, or like triggers you or something. So this is the, the, the direction you're going. And you, I think it's just a, a long winded way of saying, just be kind. <laughs> you have no idea and what are they saying? Don't assume. When you assume, you make an ass out of you yeah. and me. Well, there was, <laughs> you know? a, there was a, a Buddhist uh, monk when he was dying. He was asked by his fellow monks, if you could say only one teaching to people, what would it be? And that's what it was, Jerry. It was be kind. Just be kind. That's all. Two words. Be kind. Yeah. And, I think it uh, can change the world. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you use the word assumption, like one of the things we use in my field is that when people get a diagnosis or have a sudden ER event, their assumptive world, the way they thought things should be, has been shattered. Yes. And, and you don't know, you know, who those people are that are walking around or driving around. Yeah, and you know what, I'm just gonna say this and I'm not calling the cancer card or anything, but we know that I was diagnosed with cancer in November. It shatters your world. Mm -hmm. And especially, sorry, I'm getting a little weepy, but especially people like us, cause we, is, and I don't know if we assume, but I, I'm into the law of attraction. How did I bring this on? I should be yeah. able to get rid of this. How should, you lose your mind. You lose yeah. your mind for a brief period of time. And I guess some people never get it back. I fortunately had a really good support system and when it was able to get it back, but I love what you say. It shatters your world. And you, and you, you know, I probably don't even know what I did for a month. Like, how was I acting? How was I being to other people? I, I, I probably don't even know. Cause it was just like, I'm living moment to moment and just trying to get through this. Yeah. You know, it, what I often say to people who have been traumatized like that, Jerry, is because they'll apologize a lot. And yeah. I'll say, look, if your shoes match or if you even have shoes on, you're doing well, you know? Yeah. Like, because yeah. I, I can't remember anything of the days after my son died. I'm I have sure. no idea how I got Yeah. Started. And yeah. that's the way it is. That's the way the psyche processes trauma. It's a protection. Yeah. It's actually a protection the way the psyche uh, automatically protects you by 
shutting down in a certain way. Yeah. It's kind of like fight or flight. Yeah. Sort of like your your it's a defense mechanism, like your your and do you think it's physical? Almost. Yes. It is physical. I mean it's physiologic, my physiological, opinion. yeah. Better better Actually, term, obviously. Yeah. Physiological. So you're you're you know yeah, because yes, I think you become on autopilot a little bit. Yeah. And, and you know, probably you spent more time in bed than you normally would or slept right. later or whatever. You do whatever you need to do to contain and function. It's and then it's really interesting because the apologizing thing, because I'm being called to apologize right now that my trauma was nothing compared to yours. So isn't that funny? Because I really am. I'm like, okay, not, my, mine was no big deal. Mine was no big deal. Like, so I'm, I'm being called to apologize for that, for making what, what was a little thing into a big thing. So we feel guilty about that. I think that's generational too, because we're all, you know, Kathy, you're a little younger. Well, you, both of you, I'm, I'm in my sixties, but I, I feel like it's generational. I am the youngest here. I'm just going to say. You are the youngest. <laughs> but I mean, like when I grew up, it was the, the attitude was, you know, like, suck it up. No yes. one wants to listen to you, whatever. Yes. Figure it out. We have our own things. Nobody wants well, to hear it. You know, a big, a, big, um, a big saying in my house was, well, it's not that bad. It's not like you have cancer or something. So, <laughs> so I can say, actually, <laughs> I, I remember once, um, you know, it, my father said to me, you know, I was in college and there was something big going on in my life and it was very traumatic for me or whatever. And I remember my father, Lord, like my dad, I'm not saying you know, whatever, but he, he said, um, suck it up. I went to Korea. Mm. <laughs> so it was like, okay. And then you see how we all learn to shut, to shut exactly. ourselves down. Right. If you grow yeah. up with that, Meg, I'm going to, um, I want to, I want to ask about this. Um, you have mediumship ability. Yes. Oh, yes. You do. And as, yeah, it, it, it came, I didn't ask for it. It came as such a surprise to me. How, how when, when in your life? I'm I had probably, I had already trained as a chaplain. And it's sort of like our teacher, Danielle, would say to us, if you reflect on it, you had intuitive and empathetic abilities as a child. And that was definitely true. But talk about pushing them away. I mean, that was not, as a yeah. young, Catholic, a little Catholic girl, that was not encouraged. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. Absolutely. We're all little Catholic girls. Yeah, we're all little, young, little Catholic. Yeah, you're going to hell. So I was in my 40s. Uh, I, had, I, was, I had done a few years of bedside with dying people in ER. And um, I remember the room I was in. I was at Hartford, Connecticut Hospital. And... Um, I can picture this room just like this room I'm in. Yeah. Uh, and I was sitting bedside with this woman. And the first thing that happened is I started to take a chair when I came in the room. And she says, you can't sit there. Bob is sitting there. And I knew that her husband, her deceased husband was named Bob. And I said, oh, okay. So I moved, you know, because I was open to anything. and. Um, so he was sitting there and he proceeded to 
make himself known to me in a way that you'll all understand. Like mm -hmm. I could, I just, it had a clarity to it that was astounding, you know, just like, okay, he's there. Mm -hmm. And there were things he wanted me to say to her. Number one, to reassure her that he was waiting for her and that it was okay for her to leave their adult children, that they were going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And he had left them well fixed financially. That was, of course, as a man, that was a patriarch. Yeah. That was part of what, what he deal. Yeah. yeah, to communicate. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of it. That was the first case. And, you know, your first time of almost anything, you remember it really well. Yeah. But there were many, many other times that, you know, it, once it's happened once, it just started to happen you know so do you share like you know that's a that's a little tricky there and I, I would imagine you would have to feel your way through it so okay it happens many times how do you you can't just go into every anybody that's in your care and say hey by the way your dead husband is over there and he's telling me to tell you this i mean you, yeah. you kind of can't um, put that out there with a lot of people do you, do you know what i mean so how do you navigate that wouldn't you wouldn't ever do it on day one you know right. <laughs> and when you only have that 48 hour window it doesn't happen so yeah uh if you have a long-term hospice patient uh then you've gotten to know the family and you know whether they would accept this or be open to and the patient you know obviously the patient sometimes you can do this kind of communication in the presence of family but you, you get to know who's open to it and who isn't. And if you find somebody that's not open to it, do you still try to, I don't know if this is a weird question or not, do you st still try to get the message in there, but maybe just fudge the part about where it's coming from? Exactly. You, that's okay. how I would say it. I, okay. I would not necessarily say that it was coming from the other side. Right. Okay. Uh, well, what a blessing for you, though, to have. No kidding have that ability no, to be able to give that message to people who if they had another chaplain come visit them that day that couldn't communicate with the spirit world would never get the message right well i believe and i think you guys believe as well that we are matched with the people that we can help absolutely yeah. so that's the synchronicity piece yeah. And uh, kind of a, a really cute, funny story about this was I have a close friend whose husband died when she was in her 40s, and he was about 50 of cancer. And this was about seven years after he had died, and I had been friends with both of them. So I was visiting her from afar. She lives in Florida, and I was living in Oregon, so I was visiting. And we were in her kitchen, and someone as a gift had given her a pair of earrings that she loved. And, but she said to me, Meg, I can't wear these because I only wear the earrings that Steve gave me. Mm -hmm. So suddenly Steve is sitting next to me mm -hmm. in her kitchen. And I knew her well enough to say, Colleen, Steve is here. And there's something he wants me to tell you. And she knew me. She knew my career. She knew everything. And she said, what? And I said, he wants you to wear those earrings. He thinks you're going to look beautiful in them. It doesn't mean you can never wear the earrings he gave you, but right. don't, he doesn't want you to deny yourself anything. Okay. You know? So you. that was like That's a, awesome. delightful, a delightful moment because mm -hmm. nobody was dying, you know. Right. right. And her husband had been 
gone for seven years, so she was pretty far along in her grief process. Even so, we both cried, you know, when this happened. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it, in my case, I, I have not trained in mediumship. So I always say, I can't make it happen. I'm sure if I trained, I could make you it could. happen. You yeah, could. Of course. And, right. and I never asked for it to happen. It wasn't like I set out to have this ability. Could Which I, to me makes it even more special. It's really cool because it happened in what you might call an organic way. Like it, and it happens when it needs to happen. And it happens when you're with somebody that really, you know, yeah, when, I, when I'm the, the person that they need, that's when it happens. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious if, it, and if, if you don't mind me asking you this question and you don't have to answer, um, has your son ever come through to you? Oh, absolutely. Okay. From the, he died on April 10th, 2016. Oh. We did not find out he died. He, he was dead because he was overseas. In, you said he was, he was in Mexico. Okay. On vacation. And we found out from the Mexican consulate on the 11th of April. Mm. And literally, I was at the library about to go into a book club. And my husband called me. And he said, don't go into book club. Come out to the park. There was a park outside the library. Well, right away, I was concerned that, you know, something was wrong. Right. And I did not know my son was in Mexico because he, he was an adult. He didn't tell me every time he went on vacation. Right. So um, when my husband told me, I was like a wounded animal, literally. I mean, you know, many, many people since have asked me, did your career and your training help you when, you, when your son died? And I said, the only thing it helped me with is that I knew what I was in for. You right. know? Which is, yeah, is that better or worse though, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's not necessarily better. But, you know, it's, it was a moment when all bets were off. I mean, I, I sounded like a wounded animal. Yeah. And at that moment, I actually heard from my son's guides. And the guides said... Uh, my, my son suffered from not really mental health issues. I would say emotional issues. He had, he had experienced trauma as a child. Um, and, you know, he had seen many mental health professionals. But the guide said he suffered enough. So in other words, they were letting me know that his passing for him was a blessing mm. and immediately after that my son spoke to me and said nothing that we his parents did or did not do led to his death so he was and that has helped me tremendously because from the the moment that i found out he did not want me to have any guilt feeling that i was I somehow could have, as a parent, you're always going to think, somehow I could have prevented this, you know, and like I, you know, whatever. But 
he had a bleed in his brain, you know. I mean, there was nothing that I could have done, but as a parent, I probably would have found a reason to feel guilty. Well, uh, absolutely, and it's, you know, he may have been 36 years old, but he was still your child. Yeah, and every, I do a ritual. Every morning I ring a bell for him, and I have a little bag of inspirational words here, and every morning I pull a new one out, and that's my word for the day. And I put it on his urn, which is sitting right next to me. And I, I'm a big believer in ritual, and I've taught ritual. It, it helps people to uh, give a structure to their day when they're grieving. Mm-hmm. And the grief for, for your offspring never goes away. You know, uh, It gets better, but it, it doesn't go away. So the ritual helps me a lot. Um, and... As since the topic is grief in general, I think if people are open to ritual, it helps them. And ritual does not have to be religious at all. Uh, we, my husband created a memorial garden for our son. It has a cairn where anybody who loved him can come and leave a rock. Mm-hmm. So th- that's in nature, you know. Yeah. And when I'm teaching ritual, one of the things in a circle, I help people to understand I take a lot from Native American tradition because they were all about the earth and the sky and the, you know, is that, you know, it doesn't have to have anything to do with religion. You know, it's whatever you find soothing and comforting is what you need to do. Yeah. Um, That's but, how I feel about as a recovering Catholic about, I don't need to go to a church to, Right. Connect with my spirituality. I can sit on my front porch and watch the birds sing. I can, you know, do any number of things. It doesn't have to be in a building with a man and a microphone yeah. telling me I'm going to go to hell if I'm not a good person and then asking for money. I may have some unresolved yeah, you need a session with me, Kathy. I actually would love a session with you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. as a fellow recovering Kathy. Yeah. Right. This yeah. has been an amazing discussion. It really and, has. And we've been going for over an hour. And we and did laugh a little bit. We did. We did. We, did. we, did. we definitely did. We definitely did. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Meg. I think you just have, well, we said a calling. There definitely is a calling, but I, I'm so grateful that you could share all of that with yeah. us, with the listeners. And what a, yeah, and what a, what a gift. Um, yeah. I, I do, I do, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are called to do a lot of different things, but Meg, we definitely need more people like you in this world that are, are willing to, because it's, it, it must be, especially as an empath and an intuitive, it, it's, I'm sure, not the easiest job. And it has a lot of, a lot of sadness for you, too, that's, you know, so thank you. Yeah. For- well, you, as, as a, with this kind of a calling, you do need to have tools yes. to put, I'll say, put yourself back together. Right. Mm-hmm. Mine is swimming. I live on a lake. It's I'm I live in nature mm-hmm. and and swimming is how I can 
literally cleanse myself of anything that's still mm -hmm. clinging to me. Because you all know that you don't want to have other people's stuff like yeah. cobwebs. <laughs> right. Right. Clinging that's a great me. way to say it, cobwebs. That's a great way yeah. to say it. Ginger, yeah. do you have, let's ask Meg some of those questions. Actually, Kathy, you, I think you're going to have to because I don't have the show. Yeah. So we, we can um, skip the religion one. We know that. Uh, right. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to do a couple of them off the top of my head. My couple favorite ones are, um, if you could have any, if you, if you could have dinner with any person alive or, or past, who would it be? No question. Winston Churchill. Oh, really? That's oh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'm a huge admirer of him. Cool. And the other one that I love to ask is, if you believe heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you reach the pearly gates? Let me take you to your son. Uh, well, I have one more because I saw this written down. Um, and I want to, um, we're going to end on a laugh. <laughs> What's your, what was your least favorite word, Meg? Oh, God. Uh, now I got to remember it. Uh. See, at my age, that's the kind of thing that leaves you. Um, I'm gonna. <laughs> you might have to tell them, Jerry. I'm gonna read it off the page. It was phlegm. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so gross. So I read. I read it, and I go, God, she's right. That's a horrid word. <laughs> like, yeah. And I was just laughing again at that. I was like, God, I wouldn't have like yeah. pick that word but now and i just read that right before you came on and now i'm like thinking of that word all day i'm like oh god that is well, that's, that's a hor horrible word so yeah, what was my favorite word uh i don't know let me let me try to look <laughs> she's like i can only remember them. i think Again, it was something like splendid or i was just laughing so hard hold on a second talk amongst yourselves for a little bit um uh, i think it was it might be splendid Oh, uh, I like that word. I have a lot of favorite words. Um, it was possible. Possible. Uh, possible. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was possible. So, um, yeah. Cool. But phlegm. Just thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And as uh, always, all of Meg's information will be posted on the Psychic Lives website. So please go and take a look. Um, Thank you to Meg, and we will be back again next week. I was going to say, we always say it, but you found us, if you're listening, that you can find us on Apple Podcasts yeah. and on Spotify. Um, our Facebook is at The Psychic Wives, and our website is thepsychicwives.com. So please join us next week, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you, thank you so much, Meg. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.